Hello, this is Psych Jason. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Hughes. I'm very, very happy to be back for another week. There are no announcements today, so we're just going to roll right through. With me here today is Dr. Cindy Duke. Say hello to the audience, Dr. Duke. Hello, audience, and happy, happy day of the week. <laughs> well, it's Wednesday for us. Well, you know what? It's yeah. going to be Wednesday for the people that are listening to this podcast. So happy Wednesday right. to everybody. <laughs> Wednesday. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Are you ready to get started? I am. I am. I'm ready, ready. All right. Well, let's get to it. All right, we're back. I always like to give a brief introduction so that the audience knows who it is that they're listening to or watching speak. You are Dr. Cindy Duke. You attended the University of Rochester School of Medicine for your MD. You received your PhD in microbiology and immunology from the same institution. You completed your residency in OB-GYN at Johns Hopkins, and you completed your fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Yale. Currently, you are the medical director of the Nevada Fertility Institute. And last but not least, you are known as America's only dual accredited fertility expert and virologist. And with that, I am absolutely honored and thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my distinct honor to be here and to share this conversation. All right. Yeah. So the, the topic of infertility uh, is one that is becoming increasingly more important for me to learn about. Uh, at my age, I'm 32 years old, by the way. So at my age, every time I turn around, there's someone who's getting engaged or someone who's getting married. There's, there's actually been a few divorces, but overall, most people are coming together and trying to start a family, which is beautiful. I love to, I love to see that and I love to hear about it. But yeah. what we what we sometimes don't see or sometimes don't hear about is when things don't always go according to plan when trying to start a family. Um, right. Sometimes I, I don't hear about it all that often. I don't see that much about it. But you do, Dr. Duke. You do. I do. And it's really you highlighted you touched the nail right on the head, which is it's a silent disease. Infertility is a disease um, as classified in the United States, classified by the CDC. Yet we don't talk about infertility. It's a taboo subject. It's a subject that has cultural taboo, has religious taboo, has personal conflict, and certainly comes with a lot of shame, um, which is for most people, particularly if you start factoring in people of color, people of color, communities and immigrant communities in particular, you start feeling a lot of those pressures that lead to people staying silent, even when struggling with infertility. So one of the big things that I do is work on raising awareness and also just demystifying the whole thing. Um, for a long time, people thought infertility was really something that was only restricted to women. And so women have infertility. So one of the first things I've done is really work hard along with a lot lot of other fertility specialists to point out that 50% of cases of infertility actually involve something going on with the partner that makes sperm. 
the male partner. And so it's really important to have that conversation because many times when you encounter young people who are struggling with infertility, everyone's response is, well, what did you do? Meaning talking to the woman, what have you done about it? What is it about your health that's leading to infertility when in fact it's a 50-50 deal? Wow. And so we need to be evaluating both. So I love that you, as someone who represents as a male, identifies as a male correction, someone who identifies as male is pointing out that infertility should be a consideration even for the guys. Because what that means is the conversation can be had. We can point out that you know one in eight uh, women struggle with infertility. 16% of all couples in the United States struggle with infertility, that people under 35, male or female, can have infertility. And so it's super important that we're aware of these statistics. Um, critical to the statistic is also recognizing that when we're born, as someone who's born with ovaries, we're born with a fixed number of eggs. We're not making new ones. Right. As we age, those egg numbers decline and the, not, the eggs themselves are aging. So not only are the numbers going down, but they're getting older. So they don't perform in the same way as we get older. So we need to talk about that. And if someone's not planning to have children right now, but maybe would want to have biological children in the future, they should definitely be considering free, freezing their eggs, even if they're married or in a long-term committed relationship. If you guys aren't planning to add to the family right now, consider freezing eggs or freezing embryos which would mean fertilizing eggs with sperm and then freezing them. And if you're a guy, because we never know how life goes, you should also be considering freezing some sperm mm. as well. Mm. Well, okay. Your job is so important. <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I'm actually, um, even before we get into more specifics, I'm curious as to what was your journey to become a reproductive endocrinologist and also a virologist? Could you, could you explain to us how you got to where you are today? Yes, you know, it's a long journey, but basically, so, you know, the usual, you get through high school, then you go to college, right? College is four years. And then I applied to an MD, PhD program. So a medical scientist training program, which is one of the NIH funded programs at the University of Rochester. And so those are at minimum seven year programs, but can go as long as 10, 11 years. For me, it was eight years. So what that meant is I started medical school. I did the first two years of clinical medical school that you do. And then after the two years of medical school, instead of going off to the wards where you do the final two years of your clinical part of medical school, I went into the laboratory and studied for my PhD, which took four years. And I work in a lab where I studied immunology, virology, specifically the interplay of viruses and the human immune system, designing vaccines that can actually uh, augment the immune system, designing vaccines that can elicit different responses to different viruses, including working with viruses like adenovirus, which is actually the vector being used in the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine candidates, right. working with HIV, working with herpes, amongst others. Um, just lots of viruses. So for four years, and then when that was completed, so in those four years, I earned a master's of science and a PhD. And then I came back and completed the last two years of medical school. So altogether eight years. And then 
um, I went into OBGYN residency. So here's the fun story. When I applied to college and medical school, I was pretty sure I was going to be a pathologist. Like, <laughs> wow. Okay. And this is because, oh yeah. And this is because um, at age 12, I grew up in the Caribbean. So I grew up in the small island of Tobago. Most people have heard of Trinidad and Tobago, which is the southern, the southernmost country in the Caribbean. I'm from the small island of the two. So at the time, our population was 25 to 30,000. And I met a doctor. It was my first Black female physician I'd ever met. And she was amazing. She went on to become a pathologist. I really wanted to be like her. So I was pretty sure I'm going to be a pathologist. And, you know, I applied to college. I was a biochemistry major in college. Pretty sure I was on the path. If you go back and read my MD, PhD, application essay for med school. I talk all about my future career to become a pathologist. Then I start medical school. Um, medical school actually happened. We started medical school exactly uh, four weeks before 9-11. 9-11 happened and then we went into anatomy lab and just a number of changes mentally happened for me. And I was like, I don't wanna be a pathologist. I, I like dealing with the living so much so that I started realizing not only am I interested in the living, I'm interested in the beginning of life. Right, right. And that was solidified for me when I did my rotations and was serendipitously exposed to the fertility clinic because the ob clinic I was supposed to work at, the doctor had to go out on leave. So after a scramble, I was sent to rotate at the fertility clinic and that was it for me. It was an opportunity to see where I could do research, I could do everything I was interested in, which is genetics, the biology of life, the chemistry of life, which is the endocrinology side of things, but also surgery. I love working with my hands. And this was going to be an opportunity to also keep working with my hands. So by the time I was done with medical school, I already knew that I wanted to be not just an OBGYN, but a fertility specialist. So I applied into residency very clearly stating I want to go on to become a fertility specialist. So that's really my path. And the rest was then just fulfilling the dream really wow it, it always amazes me when i hear stories of people in their 20s and their 30s just talk about how many different directions their lives could have gone yeah. or did go. it's always amazing <laughs> it's amazing and it's really cool because you know again i tell people 20 years ago i would have never pictured myself i really i never did i never pictured myself as the person having her own clinic because I, I started a clinic right out of fellowship. Wow. Nor would I have told people I'd be living in Las Vegas. That certainly, Vegas wasn't on my radar. And yet, you know, just one serendipitous event after another, and here we are. Yeah, Los Angeles was not a city on my radar either, and that's where I live now. It's at, <sighs> Right? <laughs> All right. So since you mentioned your practice, let's let's get into it. OK, so talk to me. Who is the typical patient that comes to see you at your practice? Um, you know, a typical patient varies, but it depends on what they're coming for. So if we look at infertility, the typical infertility patient is sadly someone who's tried for years right. to conceive. I say sadly because if you go by our definitions for infertility, you actually meet criteria if you're under age 35, born with ovaries. If you've tried 
unprotected heterosexual intercourse for a year and haven't conceived, that's infertility. Yet typically I'm seeing people who've been trying for five years, seven years, nine years, because it takes that long, one, before they realize something's not right, or two, before a physician or a clinician says, wait a minute, You've been trying for too long without success. Let's get you in to see someone. Um, and then for the ones who are 35 and older, our definition actually says, if you've had regular unprotected intercourse for six months and haven't conceived, you should be seeing a fertility specialist. So again, in that patient population, we're not seeing them until one year, two years, three years in. Um, so that's why I say, unfortunately, because it's unfortunate not just because they're unable to conceive, but there's also a delay in them actually getting in to see us finally. So the typical infertility patient is someone who's been trying for a few years, someone who feels really beaten down and sad. Emotionally, infertility is stressful. Emotionally, infertility really takes a hit to someone's ego, someone's sense of self, someone's sense of self-worth. If you start coupling in everything else that we know from societal pressures, social pressures, familial pressures, cultural pressures, it really takes a toll. So that's who I'm seeing um, when it comes to infertility. We also have people coming in to freeze eggs. So we're seeing some people who aren't at that point where they want a family now, but they want to have some options. And then my third big group would be patients with polycystic ovary syndrome, so younger women diagnosed with PCOS, or those diagnosed with cancer and coming into freeze eggs or sperm before getting treatments for cancer. So it's like four sort of buckets of patients. Oh, that's a, that's a very wide variety. Mm -hmm. It of, is, and ranges in age, too. Yeah, well, that's uh, one of the things that surprises me, actually. Um, you know, time is a... You, you mentioned this when we first started talking. Time is a factor. And the fact that there is a delay mm -hmm. by, it, did you, I'm sorry, did you say like eight years? An eight eight year to nine years. I mean, that's always the shock when I start talking with patients and we realize, so, you know, for some patients, they'll say, oh, we've only really been actively trying for a year. And then I said, well, can you tell me how long have you been having unprotected intercourse with your partner, maybe more than one partner, but definitely this current partner. And for many of them, you hear, well, yeah, since we've been married, for example, we've been married nine years, 10 years. We've never used protection, yet never an, oh, we're pregnant, not even a maybe pregnant. And so it's amazing once you start really delving into that, how many people have been struggling with it for so long but didn't realize hmm. that's hmm. what was going on. Well, my next question is, are there misconceptions about what you do as a fertility expert? Again, with those delays, I would think after three years max, someone would be breaking down the doors of your office, yeah. <laughs> at least to ask questions. You uh, think, um, and we hope. We hope, uh, yeah. <laughs> but the truth is, uh, no, the majority still aren't aware. And we're doing a lot of work right now just raising fertility awareness. So you'd be surprised that for most people, short of being told, okay, now you have your period, for example, if you're looking at a woman, you have a period, try not to get pregnant as a teenager. That's sort of the extent of most people's conversations related to sex, health, and fertility, right? The assumption is just, okay, you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. And so what I also have is a lot of patients who are struck by the fact that they spent a large part of their life avoiding pregnancy, 
all right, actively avoiding, whether it be birth control, uh, using contraception, using condoms, etc. but also no one ever telling them, by the way, you were born with a fixed number of eggs. And as you're aging, not only are your eggs aging with you, they're declining. So fun fact, if you take any person who was born with ovaries, when they're born, they're born with somewhere between one to four million eggs. By the time they're 30 years old, three zero, 70% of the eggs they were born with, gone, all gone. By the time they're 40, four zero, 97% of the eggs they were born with are gone. That's just a natural decline wow. of egg numbers. Wow. Mm -hmm. I think when you say the number 4 million, that just sounds like a number. You're going to, I got plenty of eggs. <laughs> exactly. But no, they're declining. And then whatever's remaining is aging with you. Right. So that, you know, an egg, for example, when it's 18 will perform a certain way, but you take that same egg and you age it to 30, 35, 40, 44, if it's still around, it doesn't perform in the same way when it meets sperm. So it's harder to form a pregnancy. It's harder for the pregnancy to keep going. And of course, then we're talking other risks and, the pregnancy yields a baby that's live born. We're still looking at things like Down syndrome, et cetera. And so other things that can complicate a pregnancy. And yet we don't have that conversation. You know, it's not something that's discussed in sex ed. It's not something that's explained even for guys. So guys will keep making sperm their whole lives, which is awesome. But the truth is as a man ages, the amount of sperm he makes declines and the way his testicles function the clients as well. So you couple aging testicles and sperm production with aging and declining egg number, it gets more challenging over time. Well, I think there may be a few reasons for that. And listen, for anyone listening to this who thinks I'm completely off base, I apologize. <laughs> I'm just spitballing here. Okay. But the fact is that when you tell someone that they have to get pregnant by a certain age, I think that can sometimes be offensive Yes. offensive to people and yeah, in the attempt to give people more power and more control over their lives it's just it's just not discussed and it's not mentioned correct would you would you agree I with think, that i agree with it and i think you know i try to tell people that's probably the drawback of the amazing job that we did when we explained feminism and I'm a feminist. I identify as a feminist. I think one of the things that we did was we disconnected the biological clock from the conversation, which is we definitely want people to feel like they have autonomy over their bodies, because you do. You have autonomy. We want people not to feel like they're pressured or forced into having children and know that they have choices. I think where we didn't do so great with the messaging was explaining just what natural biological fertility looks like and the impact of age and time on that. And that's just natural aging, right? I haven't even brought in the layers, like if you got sick and needed chemotherapy and the impact that chemotherapy has on eggs, if you needed radiation therapy, the impact that has on eggs. If you're someone diagnosed with something called endometriosis, which is a painful syndrome that occurs with people who are having periods, it costs our US society about $22 billion a year, endometriosis from all the days lost from school, work and productivity. 
And yet nobody really has been talking until recently about the impact of endometriosis and how toxic it is to ovaries and eggs. And so we really haven't done a good job there. And so what we have happening is we have a lot of people showing up in their thirties and forties. And for the first time you're having to break the God awful news to them that their egg number is low, their egg number is declined, that um, even if you look amazing and we've done so well there too, which is we're great at preserving people's look. You know, if you're talking to someone who's African-American, we even have our joke, which is black doesn't crack, yet the eggs, <laughs> the eggs go away and they crack, you know? And so imagine having to tell someone who's in their 40s, but they look like in their 30s, they feel amazing, their life is finally where they want it. And you're saying to them, I know you're ready to start your family, but we do have a few complications in that we don't have that many eggs to work with. And so you need to do better. And that's what we're doing now is really working on advocating for awareness, advocating for comprehensive education, which is, I'm of the opinion, if we're talking sex ed, sex ed should not only be how to prevent pregnancy, but to really explain how pregnancy happens and the factors that are important to pregnancy as we age. Right. Yeah. I think when, um, you know, social, social concerns mixed with science, it can kind of, the, the, it can get kind of muddy. It can get kind of, yeah. And I think that's what's happening. So yeah. uh, Again, for anyone listening to this, I think we're just trying to give you the numbers here, not necessarily trying to press you into doing something you're not ready to do. Just making sure people have information and that they have awareness of their options, because one of the most common things we see right now is patients say, gosh, I wish I knew this sooner, you know, Prior to 2013, there wasn't a whole lot we could tell people about their eggs. But now since 2013, that's an option. You can freeze eggs. Egg freezing is standard of care, FDA approved since January 2013. Um, Yet only certain communities have had access to it. Certain socioeconomic demographics have had access to it. So we're definitely working on making sure everybody knows. Okay. Okay. So let's... Let's 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 delve even even deeper into this. I think you might have mentioned this earlier, but I just want to make sure that we we cover it again. How often, um, I guess maybe based on population, or maybe even how often you see it in your office, are couples struggling with infertility? Sixteen percent. Sixteen. Sixteen percent. So wow. that's what one in six. One in six couples struggles with infertility based on the CDC's family data. And so infertility can be broken down into what we call primary infertility and secondary infertility. So primary infertility would mean that someone's never had a child. They've been struggling the whole time, never had a child. Secondary infertility is probably the hardest one because it's typically someone who's had a child before. So now they don't believe they could ever have a difficulty conceiving and then now they're struggling and so that's the one that's even harder because for many of those people they don't see a fertility specialist because they presume well that can't be me i've had a baby before right but they may have had a baby 20 years ago they may have had a baby five years ago and eggs are aging things are changing. Um, We have some people where they always are able to get pregnant. The issue is being able to stay pregnant. That's also part of the spectrum of infertility. So if someone's having recurrent miscarriages, in fact, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, which is our umbrella uh, 
organization, we define recurrent pregnancy loss as two or more losses in your reproductive lifetime. So if someone had a miscarriage five years ago and then they had another miscarriage this year, that's still a recurrent miscarriage. And there's a lot of emotion and psychological toll taken on someone's body after a miscarriage. But there are people, believe it or not, who've had 13 miscarriages. 15 miscarriages and never went to see anyone because they just thought if I just do the next one, that's the one. Right. But we actually have solutions. We have ways to evaluate, ways to help a pregnancy stay. But the only way I can help is if someone actually engages and comes in. For, for clarification purposes, let's say someone has a miscarriage, one miscarriage, and then they give birth uh, to, to a child later on and then they miscarry again, would they still fall under the two the two miscarriage rule that would still be yes sir okay yes okay. indeed yeah and so that's the thing you know there's this misconception out there in everyday parlance that says no they have to be back-to-back -back miscarriages okay that's not true and a lot of the underlying issues you know the dynamics change from one pregnancy to another so yeah you might go on to have a successful pregnancy and then start miscarrying again or if you've changed partners that might change things or simply as you're aging your thyroid can change your immune system can change all these things can factor into miscarriages too. okay okay so now we now we know how often this happens and now we know some of the things that happen now we know some of the reasons that that might be occurring we, we know a little bit more information so my question for you is what is your approach we're going to use just a typical patient what is your approach when a couple comes in and tells you you know it's been three years, five years, and we haven't been able to conceive. What do you do at that point? Well, the first thing we do as any uh, good clinician is we get a good history. So that's where we're delving into exactly, you know, how have you been trying? How have you been tracking, say, ovulation? Um, how's your health? Are you currently on any medicines? Are you on vitamins, herbal supplements? So, for example, here in Nevada, where we, and California is the same, where marijuana is legal, THC can actually negatively impact fertility, particularly for a guy, it can impact sperm. And so it's really important that we tease that apart. And if there is quite a bit of THC use, we talk about weaning off it, if not completely stopping it, weaning the amount so we can start restoring sperm um, productivity. We do some testing. So typically for the female partner, the partner that has ovaries, we will do some blood testing to see how many eggs because I brought props. Oh, this is a uterus here. For anyone, right? hold, on, hold, on, hold on one sec. For anyone watching on uh, or listening on audio only version, she now has, she's holding, this woman is holding up a uterus for the YouTubers. <laughs> Go I'm holding on. up a uterus with ovaries and fallopian tubes. And so typically when we, I talk to someone, a heterosexual couple or a couple with, you know, access to sperm and eggs, what I'm looking for is do we have the three main ingredients, which is do we have eggs, do we have sperm, and do we have a place for egg and sperm to meet, which is the fallopian tube. And that's my basic approach to infertility is do I have the three ingredients? So when I'm sitting down with a couple or whether it's a single patient, I'm asking myself, what do we have or what's missing? And then how do we fix that? So the first thing, with, if it's a couple sitting before me, is I'm doing blood work 
because there's actually this really unique hormone that's secreted from the ovaries. It's called AMH or anti-malarian hormone. And that's a blood test we can draw from the arm and get a sense of how many total eggs are remaining in the ovary. So that's the first test we do. We also do a test to check the fallopian tubes, which is called hysterosalpingogram or a dye test. And so with that, we're able to actually check to see if sperm and egg can meet in the body, and that's super important. And then we do a semen analysis, which is to check the sperm based on what we call World Health Organization standards. So we're checking to see is he making sperm, how much sperm, and then do the sperm move? Because again, going back to the model here, so this is the uterus, this is the vagina, with intercourse, semen is ejaculated into the vagina and then sperm have to swim their way up through the uterus and across into the fallopian tubes to find an egg. So really what we're checking is, do we have sperm? Do we have egg? And is the path clear for sperm to find egg? So that's the usual workup. So for people listening, not really involved in medicine, the less sperm you have, which is what you're telling, the older you are, the less chance yeah. that you have for the sperm to make it into the fallopian tube. The less eggs right. that you have, the less chances for the eggs to meet the sperm. So that's, sperm. it's right. all numbers. It's all numbers it's that we're talking numbers. about and percentages. It's all numbers. And then even if you have lots of eggs and have lots of sperm, if the tube is blocked, meaning the place for them to meet is inaccessible to the sperm or the egg, then still infertility. And so that's why we check those three things. Okay. So let's say you diagnose with someone with having a fertility issue. What are some of the, tr you, I think you mentioned some of the diagnostic techniques that you use. Correct. What are some of the, the typical treatments uh, yeah. that you like to talk about? Treatment ranges, you know, so for example, if I have someone sitting in front of me and they have polycystic ovary syndrome and they happen to be someone who's not ovulating, we'll talk about lifestyle changes that they can make. We talk about exercises, et cetera, because like something like PCOS, or some people call it PCOS, if you're not regularly releasing an egg, some of that is determined by your body fat percentage and the way your body fat talks to your brain. So if the patient's young enough, if they're eager to get pregnant, but they have a little time, we'll actually work on a weight loss plan because if certain people can lose five to 10% of their body weight, they'll start ovulating on a regular basis. And that may be all they need, nothing else for me, just working on changing lifestyle a bit, getting the body healthier they're going to ovulate. For others, I may need to give some medications, which are tablets to help them produce an egg or two from the ovary. And then they work from home with what we call timed intercourse to conceive. And then for other people, we need a little bit more intervention. So we may need to do, for example, insemination, what was historically called artificial insemination. We now call it intrauterine insemination or IUI. And that's where, for example, if the sperm counts are on the lower side, or even if there are lots of sperm, but maybe they don't move very well, we take the sperm, the semen, we'll wash it, we'll process it, and then we'll take the sperm on the day when the egg or two are released, and I would put the sperm right at the top of the womb. So instead of with ejaculation, like I said, it's going in the vagina, we can put the sperm all the way at the top of the womb, so we shorten the distance 
the sperm have to travel to find the egg. Again, increasing but, increasing the chances of the, the sperm. Okay, the sperm and egg meeting. Yeah, increasing okay. how they can find each other. So there's that. And then let's say the sperm don't move at all, meaning even if I put them at the top, if the sperm don't move, they can't even swim to find the egg. Or if it turns out the tubes are blocked, which can happen if someone's had a history of, say, chlamydia infection or history of endometriosis, which caused scarring of the pelvis, then we need to find a new way to help sperm and egg meet each other. So that's where we do in vitro. That's where we give injectable medications for somewhere between nine to 14 days. Then we put the patient to sleep and we take eggs out from the ovaries. And then we take sperm and egg and we put them together in the laboratory. We create the embryos, the fertilized eggs, we take one or two and put them back into the womb to achieve pregnancy and we freeze any extras for use for future babies. So that's the most involved, which would be in vitro or IVF. So I want to be, I want to drive this point home that it, it sounds like you're not just seeing women as an REI. Correct. You're, you see the men too. We do. We do. And so, you know, I see, Oh, like I said, 50% of our hetero couples for sure. But we treat men. Um, I have men who refer themselves because they know maybe they have a history of maybe one testicle. They maybe have a history of having been on testosterone therapy for a long time because, by the way, testosterone is male birth control. So if a guy's been on testosterone, his sperm counts do drop and many times go to zero. And so in those cases, I need to help them start making sperm again. We also have our same-sex male couples who come in, so we help them with donor eggs, surrogates to achieve pregnancy. Um, we have single dads by choice. So we have some guys who come in and they want to achieve pregnancy, but they want to be a single dad. So we work with them in that regard too. Lots of options, and we work with everyone, LGBTQIA, uh, uh, Hetero couples are single parents by choice. We work with everyone. Okay, that's that's so important, I think, because we have, and when I say we, I'm talking about just American society, the general public have a tendency to only focus on heterosexual <laughs> heterosexual women having this issue when really it's a male and female issue, an LGBTQ issue. It's, it's, it's something that many people have to deal with. And I just wanted to make sure that everyone knows that this can be a problem that anyone can have to deal with. Absolutely. And that's why we need better legislation that covers it. You know, the Supreme Court back in 1936 actually ruled that reproduction is a human right in the United States. And yet we still have a lot of barriers to being able to achieve reproduction. Hmm. Well, could you talk a little bit more about that, uh, about that legislation? Um, yeah, actually, I, let me pull up the name of it again, because I'm like blanking. Sure. But um it's well, it's I, I well, I typically don't even talk politics, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say you know this is this actually needs to be apolitical, so we'll talk about it because I think is it okay to do that or yeah, you can you can talk about no, oh, okay. I mean I don't even know um, if we need to edit it out. We're just we're just talking yeah. here. <laughs> I really this is one that I think people need to hear about. Because it matters so much. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I try yeah, to so edit. I try so to edit as little as possible. Oklahoma. Could you yeah. say that again? 
So one second, let me come back to Zoom. So it's Skinner versus Oklahoma. And this was a lawsuit that was brought by a chicken farmer in Oklahoma where, so in the United States, there was one time believe it or not, where there were laws that said that if you didn't make enough money, if certainly if you were incarcerated, and then we knew this was also happening illegally in communities of color, including um, indigenous communities, where people were being forcibly sterilized against their will. And so in Oklahoma, um, Skinner actually challenged the law in Oklahoma and took it all the way to the Supreme Court, challenging the state's right to sterilize based wow. on income, based on IQ. And the Supreme Court actually ruled that yes, reproduction is a human right that cannot be violated by simply a state law. And so that's a major landmark decision in the United States. And it really means that it's why, for example, you know, tubal ligations, you can't just tie someone's tubes without their permission. In fact, uh, if someone has federal insurance or Medicaid, Medicare, um, an OBGYN, if the person is full term, meaning delivering a baby after 37 weeks, you cannot tie their tubes unless they've consented to it at least 30 days before. And if they're delivering preterm, you cannot tie their tubes unless they've signed it 72 hours before delivery. And that's based on what we know, which is some bad actors historically in this country who did uh, sterilize people for a host of unethical reasons. Yeah, for for re a, I'm blanking on. I think I know which hospital it was, but even if I did, I wouldn't say it. But there, that definitely happened. I think in. Um in Los Angeles with one hospital in particular that yes. was sterilizing, uh, sterilizing women. women. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. Okay. I do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's important for us to be mindful of this history. And certainly that's part of my approach when I see my patients, which is I'm really a proponent for what I call shared decision-making. And so when I'm sitting with my patient, my job is to present you with all of the information, but it is not my job to decide for you. My job is to give you enough information, answer as many questions as you have, make sure I'm giving you all the angles all the angles and then my patients make decisions and every patient makes the decision that's right for them and it works it works and so it's proof that we don't need to force things down people's throats you know i have patients who come in they hear all the options and then they say you know what i'm i think i'm at peace i don't need to do anything further for my infertility there are others who say i want to do everything let's pull out every stop we have some who hear the options, they see the odds, they know their egg numbers are low, and they may say, okay, can I borrow eggs from someone younger, which is called donor egg. Um, but it's really important to just provide people with information, never make assumptions. Um, when it comes to cancer patients, for example, you know, I've there are actually really great studies, um, some performed by me as well, which showed that there was a very paternalistic side to medicine when it came to cancer patients, particularly those with lower income means, where doctors wouldn't tell patients about the impact of their chemotherapy 
or their surgical therapy for their cancer on their future reproduction because they assume the patient won't be able to pay for egg freezing or sperm freezing. And so actually now the American Society of Clinical Oncology the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, we've all come together and issued a statement as of 2010 that says any patient whose reproductive age, which would be between ages 12 and 42, if they have a diagnosis of cancer and are about to undergo therapy that's known to be what we call gonadotoxic, meaning toxic to their gonads, they should be counseled on the risk of the therapy to their future reproduction and offered options for preserving their fertility. And the reason why that became the case is because before that statement, it was really only being afforded to people who the clinical team perceived to be economically able to freeze eggs and sperm, which really ended up disenfranchising, right? Those who they made assumptions about. And yet there are so many ways for people to afford it. I've had patients where maybe the family couldn't afford it, but we found them grants to help them freeze eggs. The church or the place of worship helped them uh, raise money to freeze eggs. There are also amazing charities out there including Livestrong Foundation that can help. And that's a foundation that was started by Lance Armstrong, actually. Yeah, yeah yes, Lance. Lance did, Lance did a lot of good things for the world. Yeah, <laughs> That's that one, one of the <laughs> lasting positive legacies of his career and his own diagnosis with te testicular cancer. Well, just when we think about the history of medicine or just the world in general, I, I think it's hard for us to look at it and say things are better without stopping ourselves and realizing that things are better. They're not perfect. Like we right. still we still need to move forward and make improvements, but it's okay yeah. to like take a step back and say, okay, we we we're doing better. Let's yeah. let's do better going forward. Also, um, so I it's mean, wild when you tell me when you talk to me about. I thought it was just like a Los Angeles thing when you talk to me about sterilization going on. Oh yeah, that's wild. It's wild. There's actually a case right now that's playing out in Canada where they were still actively, unfortunately, sterilizing indigenous women all the way into the late 90s, right? So there's a case being actively litigated right now. And we highlight it because it shouldn't happen again, right? It shouldn't happen again. And if it could have happened as recently as the 90s, it means that pervasive thinking exists among some people. And so the way you root it out is you talk about it and you make sure people know it's not going to be allowed to happen again. Right. Yeah. And that's that's important. That's important. Unfortunately, I'm not surprised, but I am again, I'm I'm looking at how things are now versus where where they were and I'm I'm thankful for the improvements, but definitely, you know, always looking for trying to make things even better than they are. Correct. I mean, the needle's definitely closer to the middle than it was to the far right or far left. Right. Um, but we definitely have to keep moving the needle of progress forward. We know that, for example, we talk about infertility, the when it comes to disparities for infertility, like access to care, the cost for services, infertility services aren't cheap. And so unless someone has health insurance, it's hard to afford. We know that as a first world developed country, the United States has some of the least favorable um, healthcare coverage when it comes for, to infertility, when you compare it to say countries like the Scandinavian countries, the United Kingdom, 
Israel, you know, Japan, what they're doing for their infertility and providing coverage is still very different from the majority of states in the United States. I say the majority because we have at least 14 states right now that do have mandates for infertility coverage. And so, for example, if you live in Illinois, if you live in Massachusetts, for example, they have coverage, right? If you have insurance, if you have an employer, they're mandated to provide you with fertility services. Um, with other states, not so much yet. Yet, we're working on it. Wow. I have um, just one question that I wanted to ask before we switch gears. Yeah. Is there, because patients have autonomy, Right. But so do providers. Right. Is there are there times at which you have to say, excuse me, sir, ma'am, I, I I can't either be a part of this or I don't think this is a good idea. Yes, absolutely. Um, they're, they're not super frequent, but they happen. I've had cases where, for example, <laughs> I had one patient come in and she said, you know, I want to have a donor. My donor's all set up. We just need to start. And I said, well, who's your donor? And she said, well, it's my 19-year-old daughter. She lives with me. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to need to meet with your daughter so that we can talk about how donor egg works. And, and she's like, why? She lives with me. I feed her. She has to give me her eggs. And I said, well, actually, that's not how that works, right? These eggs are hers, and I cannot do anything on your daughter without her permission. Moreover, I'm going to need you guys to see a lawyer so that this is established and so that coercion isn't part of the conversation here. And that turned into a big deal. I mean, the patient was calling like almost, if not every day, every week at one point saying, you know, can you ask the doctor she's reconsidered? But no, the rules are the rules. So definitely we don't skirt the law. We don't break or bend the rules. We follow all the rules and we make sure, because sometimes patients just don't understand what the rules are. So it's up to us to make sure they understand how things work and that we're not going to cut corners. Well, even in those times, again, important to, to point out that if you don't agree with a decision that a patient makes, they're free to pursue another provider and ask yeah. another provider if they would. So the, again, there's still autonomy yes. there. But Absolutely, you... and that would be the option. But then, so here's the thing, right? In the United States, um, unlike most other health things, we're actually regulated when it comes to fertility by the CDC and the FDA. So the Food and Drug Administration actually regulates donor egg and donor sperm. So we have to follow how that works, uh, which is very different from many other countries. And then the same goes for use of a surrogate, meaning someone carrying a pregnancy for someone. And the same goes for certain relationships that are formed to create a pregnancy. So we do actually have to follow those to the T or else not only would the physicians, wherever they are in the country, lose their license, but the practice will be out of business too. Well, yeah, the, the system break, if we don't all agree to um, laws of ethics and, and ways of yep. treatment, the system just breaks down for everybody. So, um, right. okay. So switching gears, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't think I'm taking too big of a leap by saying there's probably internal pressure, um, and feelings of shame when there's difficulty with conceiving. I don't yes. think I'm stepping too far out on a limb with that, but do no, you think, true. do you think there is societal pressure, um, external pressure on people to, to have a child? There are. 
are. And you know, the pressures are multi-pronged. So there's societal pressure, there's pressure within families, and then there's that internal personal pressure. So like, you know, we started out the episode with you saying that, you know, it's so interesting. You're seeing everyone now with babies, right? Everywhere you turn, there's a friend, there's someone you know who's having a baby, and you're literally watching your friendship circle change into a parenting circle. So that in and of itself, one, if you're hanging out with them, they're going to ask you, when are you next? When's your turn, right? And there are all these assumptions that are made, you know, you're hanging out or if you're holding someone's baby and you're playing with their child and they're like, oh my God, you're so good at that. When are you going to do one? And so that pressure starts, but then even within yourself, you start asking, is there something wrong with me if you haven't done it? You know, so there are those pressures. And then you start looking at, say, religious pressure. So if someone's part of a religious group, again, for a lot of religious groups, there are those internal pressures as well. You've got, um, as a society, you get to a certain age and society just assumes, for example, for a woman, if she's a certain age, she should have children. She should be a mom. If you're not a mom, then immediately people start questioning uh, your womanhood, your sexuality, like all sorts of assumptions dovetail from not having children, which is really, really, really odd. Um, even in some roles, right, while some people aren't offered promotions if they're having children. We know a lot of women have to leave the workforce as they grow their families, but we also see the pressure for other women who feel like they cannot have children right now because they'll be pushed out of their jobs, pushed out of their um, opportunities to climb the ladder when it comes to workplace because of those unstated pressures. Right. Um, and so it's a lot of pressure. Absolutely. What are some things that maximize the opportunity for a couple to have a child? That's a great question. So the first thing I thought... Well, I'm glad she liked the question. Unfortunately, everyone will have to wait until next week to hear her answer. At this point in the conversation, we're going to take a break. Gives everyone a chance to catch up. Tune in next week to Psych Adjacent as we finish up the conversation about infertility. <laughs> 